Well, again, welcome to, to Bethlehem and uh, to part three of uh, this series that we came up with a very original title for named uh, Jesus. And uh, for good reason, this is a series that I've been really uh, passionate about because I don't know if there's anything we could do that would give us a better, I guess, heart or insight into God's heart than by looking at Him, God, His Son, here on earth. And so through this series, we're going to be learning more about Him. Um, in fact, uh, this is a phrase that we used in week one of our series. You'll find it on the screen that Jesus' story has the power to change your story. And what I mean by that is this, that when you and I better understand what Jesus did and how he acted and why he did the things that he did during his three-year ministry, which we're looking at, the better we're going to understand what he's going to do in the times that we're feeling down or worn or weary as we talked before. The, the more we are acquainted with anybody, including our Savior, the more we understand his heart and his love. And, and not to mention that this series is right at the heart of who we are as a church. Um, I don't know if you saw it on the back of your service handout, but it's there every week. In a very simple way, our whole focus here at Bethlehem is just simply to lead people to Jesus to lead people to Jesus. That's why we work to build buildings. That's why um, we meet every week. That's why we create environments where hopefully adults, kids, and teens are able to, to learn about Jesus in a way that makes sense to them because it is all about him. And that's why this church is here. So this is really good stuff, this series. Um, part three. So did any of you hear about a little football game that was played last Sunday afternoon. Um, if, if you're here and you have no idea what I'm talking about, I, I just don't know how that could even be possible, okay? So I, I'm assuming that there isn't anyone like that here that we've all, you know, kind of heard about the game and the ending. There's a couple of things that, that I want to point out. Um, first thing is this. There's this phrase, uh, the Minneapolis miracle going around. And we happened last week to talk about miracles and Jesus changing into water into wine. And I just want to be really clear because I'm a theologian. And some of you, you know, probably don't even think about this. But in the true biblical sense of the word, that was not a miracle, okay? <laughs> that was an amazing, improbable ending to a game. That's a safety who missed a tackle, it's not a miracle, okay? Anyway, I just, you know, I feel better as a pastor now because I don't want people to have bad theology as they're posting on Facebook, okay? The other thing I observed and almost enjoyed as much as the ending of the game was all of the video online of people like, you know, celebrating after this thing happened. And you guys probably saw it yourself, but just in case you've been in a bunker the last week, here's one example. The dog is perplexed. 
I'll have two observations uh, to that video. The first one is this. Like, that takes a lot of forethought to have been, you know, videotaping during that last play, especially because when people started videotaping, it was not going to be a good video, was it? But still, people were videotaping, and it ended up being like a very good thing for Viking fans, right? The other thing that I observed um, was this. That, or it's our first fill-in for today. That certain moments in life are revealing. Like there's certain things that happen in your life, and the way that you react or don't react to them just surface some stuff that's in your heart or things that you are passionate about. Because the way you react or the things that you do, whether it's a a Viking fan like that or um, our own Joel Ulrich who put his hands to his face and then laid on the floor, I think in tears, that's online as well. Um, You know, the way we react to certain events is revealing of things of the way that we feel and the things that we're passionate about. And the reason why I'm bringing this out and why I felt like all these videos are just a a perfect tie-in, is because today we're going to come into contact through Scripture with an event in Jesus' life that if you're just to quickly read it, I don't know if you would maybe necessarily notice all the things that are in it, but that in fact, as we have a chance to dig into it today, this seemingly insignificant event, so to speak, reveals some things about Jesus his heart, his passion, that I don't want you ever to forget. And the reason is, is that it does two things. When you see Jesus through the eyes of this event, it's going to encourage you, and then it's going to direct you. It's going to make you feel better, or maybe worse and then better. And then it's going to give you direction for what you and I should be doing as we leave these doors. And so with that little introduction, let me set up the context of this section. So, we are still in the beginning portion of Jesus' three-year ministry. We're probably about six months or so after Jesus' baptism, which was kind of the kickstart to his ministry. Jesus is about 30 years old. Um, Jesus was baptized kind of in central Israel along the Jordan River. And as we kind of looked at last week, after his baptism, Jesus decided with some followers that he was gaining to travel north to an area called Galilee. And he, one of the things he did there was go to a wedding. Um, he did his very first miracle. That's what we studied last week. He changed water into wine. And then after that, he ended up, the, the Gospels tell us, traveling south to Judea, or the town of Jer- city of Jerusalem. And all along the way, here's what was going on. Not only was he traveling, but he was stopping in towns. He was preaching. He was teaching. The Bible tells us that Jesus' uh, followers were baptizing people in the name of Jesus. And, and here's the thing that was happening. That in these first six months, Jesus, who had been a relatively unknown person, the son of Joseph, the son of a carpenter, Jesus of Nazareth started to be getting a following. People had started to learn about this name, Jesus. And in fact, his name even got to the religious establishment of the day, one of those groups being the Pharisees. Now, if you've gone to church much in your life or read the Bible, you've heard that name, the Pharisees. And honestly, Jesus 
and that Jewish establishment, they, they continued to butt heads all through his ministry. In fact, we can say that one of the reasons, maybe the, the primary reason that Jesus, from a uh, human perspective, was crucified was of the Pharisees' hatred for him. And so they continued doctrinally to be at odds through his entire ministry. The Pharisees began to learn about Jesus. And here's what Jesus knew as he knew how all things were going to work out. He knew that while they were going to have a battle later, theologically, now was not the time. It wasn't time yet to battle the Pharisees. And so as tensions grew just a little bit in Judea, Jesus and his disciples decide to go to a much safer area for them, the area called Galilee, uh, to the north. And that's where we pick it up. Jesus and the disciples have decided that they're going to travel north to Galilee. And we pick it up in John chapter 4, verse 4. It says this, Now, Jesus had to go through Samaria. And we need to stop. Because there's a lot going on in that word had, or had to go through Samaria. Now, I'm going to explain this a little bit more by showing you a map. So Jesus is here in the Jerusalem area of Judea. Galilee is to the north. Jesus and his followers are going to be traveling from Judea to Galilee. And you might think that that verse, he had to go through Samaria, is just pointing something out that's very geographical. In order to get from here to there, you need to go through Samaria. The only thing is this, that's not at all what that verse means. Because the Bible is very hard to understand. No, it's not at all the reason. The Bible is actually pretty easy to understand. Let me explain. So, the Jews would never go through Samaria. Here's why. There were some deep-seated racial tensions, and that's about all the time I have to explain it today. Samaritans and Jews did not get along. And so the Jews carried this out to the nth degree, this hatred for Samaritans. And whenever they traveled back and forth from Galilee to Judea, they would either hug the Mediterranean Sea so close so that it felt like they weren't in Samaria, or they would go around Samaria by going through the Jordan River, or around on the other side of the Jordan River. So Jesus did not have to go through Samaria because most Jews did not go through Samaria. Jesus had to go through Samaria, as the verse says, because there was a conversation awaiting him in a town of Sychar. And more importantly than that, there was a woman at a well in the town of Sychar that desperately needed what Jesus had come to earth to bring. And so guess what, guys? Jesus had to go through Samaria. Next verse. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Maybe you saw it on that map, kind of to the northern part of uh, Samaria. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Those are two Old Testament biblical characters. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Remember what time it is. We're going to come back to that later. Verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. So last week, Jesus turns water into wine, real exciting and, you know, a miracle going on. I'm preaching on the section where Jesus asked someone for a drink of water. And we might look at these verses and right away think nothing's going on there. But if that were the case, 
then we're not understanding all the undertones going on in those first few verses. You see, for Jesus to ask a Samaritan woman for a drink of water was breaking through a whole ton of racial and cultural norms. He was reaching through what was cultural to do something that was more important. Let me explain. Not only was he in Samaria, he was hanging out in Sychar. Not only that, he was actually talking to a Samaritan. So you might, as a Jew, walk through Samaria, but you're not going to talk to anyone. Jesus did. And not only was he talking to a Samaritan as a Jew, he was talking to a Samaritan woman, which, you know, I like talking to women, and I'm sure you do too, right? Like, it's fine, men, women. But at this culture and at this time, men would not talk to women publicly. It was a, a taboo of that culture and of that time. And so you, you see Jesus breaking through some really big, deep cultural barriers here. And it brings me to our very, uh, it's, I guess our second fill-in for today. Number two, Jesus cares about people more than he cares about perception. Jesus cares about what is right more than looking right. Jesus cares more about what is good, more important than looking good. And I'm going to, a little sidebar here, because there's some really great application in this for us. The first is to recognize that this feeling of Jesus or this truth about Jesus is what led him to come to earth and to be humble because he cared about you more than he cared about his perfect, godly, all-powerful reputation. That's first and foremost. But the other thing is, I think if we did this more, the world would be a better place, wouldn't it? High school teens, what if you did this at your school? Because here's, here's what I know. I know that because I was a high school teen a long time ago, back in the horse and buggy days, I know how easy it is to treat certain people well depending on whether they're in our group or not. And sometimes feeling weird about going out of our way for someone not in our group because then the people in our group might think less of us. I know how easy it is for us to care about more about what my reputation is than just about being a nice person, loving the people in the hallways of my school. Your school is going to be a better Christ-filled place if you teens can do this like Jesus did for you. And adults, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I mean, I know not every business represented here by employees or employers necessarily will fall into the category that I'm, I'm going to explain, but there are so many in our bottom line culture where the culture you're in at work is more about did you bring in the numbers rather than along the way did you love the people you were around. And you're never going to get a bonus likely for loving the people you're around. But that will make 
the place you work, a better place. And even more than that, that is the way we can reflect in our lives what Christ has already done for us. Jesus cares more about people than he cares about perception. And that was so on display in Samaria with that woman at the well. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So this Samaritan woman is merely pointing out what we already talked about. This was not normal and she was surprised that Jesus would talk to her and with her. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that asks you for a drink? He's, he's referencing, obviously, that there's something special about the person talking to her. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And when we read that through, um, I guess, English language eyes, I, I think we right away think of something magical and mis- mysterious here with the words living water. And ultimately, Jesus is talking about something different than regular water, but she wouldn't have necessarily picked up on that right away. Here's why. In the Greek, the two words for living water also were used to reference a spring. So like a cistern is dead water. It just sits, rain goes in there, and the water sits. A spring that bubbles up is the source of a river, that is what they would call living water. And so what Jesus is saying, at least this is how the Samaritan woman would have first thought about it, is that Jesus is saying, there's a better source of water than this cistern. That I have a a source of living water. And she would have been thinking, oh, there's a spring in the desert? Okay, verse 11. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water. In fact, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as he did also his sons and his livestock? So this well had been around for a long time. Jacob, their ancestor, had found it. It's where people had gone to get water for forever. And this woman still thinking about water that trickles in a stream or a water from a spring is thinking, this must be a pretty special guy. Because he knows about a water source that our ancestors didn't know about. And in fact, she's pretty skeptical, isn't she, about that? Verse 13. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water, probably pointing at the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Okay, her wheels are starting to turn. Again, this is something different maybe than even a spring. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, not welling up necessarily to quench your physical thirst, but welling up to eternal life. And Jesus, the master preacher, Jesus, the master teacher, gives this great introduction to hook the Samaritan woman in to get her to be engaged in the conversation. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, well, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And so she realizes it's something miraculous, but still thinking about physical thirst, about 
her physical thirst. And, and, and at this point, as she's drawn, as he has drawn the Samaritan woman into this discussion about water, Jesus does something that is seemingly so insensitive that it'll make you just, I guess, surprise you if you've never read this before. She's at a point where she wants to learn more, and Jesus, who knows a lot because he's God, knows her background, knows the things she struggles with, and he goes from that question, tell me more, to this. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, as only the Son of God would be able to know. You are right when you say you have no husband. Next verse. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Whoa. I can imagine that if you're someone who's never read this before or heard this, right now you're wondering about this guy named Jesus. (laughs) How or why would he shoot so painfully and so directly to the heart. Well, first thing we need to understand here, or at least ask the question, is why did she have five husbands? It is plausible because Scripture doesn't tell us definitely. It's plausible that she had like the worst luck in the world and picked five guys and their hamburger shop, five guys who all died, okay? It's possible. I don't think it's likely. And the main reason why I don't think it's likely is because of the context of this section. The first reason is because Jesus already pointed out how this woman treated sex and sexuality. Um, She was living in a lifestyle with uh, a person that was not her husband and living as if they were married. And and so we kind of get a feeling a little bit for maybe the moral compass that she had potentially. Um, the uh, The other part of it, which maybe is even more conclusive, is what time did she go to get water at the well? Noon. Do you know who went to get water at noon in the middle of a desert? Nobody went to get water at noon in the middle of a desert heat. You know when all the women went to get water? They went like 8, 7 in the morning. And in fact, not only did they go at that time, it was a communal exercise, essentially. They went together. They spoke together. It was their time for creating friendships and just kind of, you know, that, that womanhood, that, that sisterhood together. They went when it was comfortable and they went together. This woman went at noon because what she was carrying around with her that day was heavier than the bucket she had with her. She was living in an environment where because of her past, and we don't know all the details, but likely she brought some of it on herself with some life choices. Because of her past, 
she would be forever labeled an outcast, a harlot. People, when they saw her, spoke about her and her morality, or in this case, immorality, and she didn't want to deal with it. So she went at noon when there was no one there to judge her, no one there to make her feel bad. And and you can imagine when families went or women went to the well that they, they went, have my bucket, Hans. Thank you. This was your big moment. I, I almost missed you there. It's good. Thank you. They, they, they went to the well carrying a bucket because their families and them had a thirst that they needed to quench and the water in the well was meant to quench it. This lady came to the well that day with thirst that went beyond the physical. She had a thirst spiritually, emotionally, and physically. There was something in her life that needed to be satisfied and needed to be quenched. She needed to feel better about herself, to be able to look at herself in the proverbial mirror. She was thirsty for acceptance and worthiness and love which she had felt none of. You know why? For a while in her life, and and ladies, especially young ladies, listen closely to this. For a while in her life, she, it seems, had tried to fill that need for acceptance with men or boys or young men or however you want to say it, with men. And the love of someone of the other gender, the acceptance of someone of the other gender, And so she gave herself, it seems, in ways that God had never intended. And what was the result? She put men in her bucket and she received short-term satisfaction. I think he likes me. But she did not receive long-term fulfillment because it would seem that these men did not love her. They loved what she gave them. Young ladies, remember, you can never receive in other guys or men the acceptance that you're looking for. There's only one place to receive true acceptance, and that's in your Lord, which we're going to talk about in in a second. It's nice to have guys like us It's nice to have guys want to be around us, but recognize your acceptance and worthiness does not come from what you give to guys or what they respond to you with, but instead from your heavenly father. Now, we, we, we travel through life with buckets because we all feel worn and weary at times, right? And so we've got a bucket of thirst that we need to get filled and it's not always the same. You know, for us, sometimes we try to fill the, the thirst for acceptance and worthiness with, with romance and, and sex. And, you know, understand, um, husbands and wives, that even the most loving husband or wife cannot give to you the acceptance that you're longing for unconditionally because you married a sinner. And before you get too disappointed, so did he or she, Okay when they married you, right? 
He can't, it just can't happen. Others of us, uh, maybe in this room or people that we know, um, are thirsty for, for just, you know, being able to get through life. And so they just kind of numb things with, with alcohol, short-term gratification, not long-term fulfillment. For others of us, this is me at about 10.30 at night after a long meeting where I just want some ice cream or nachos. Um, Food, right? We, we try to make ourselves feel better, and this isn't always bad, but sometimes it's food. That lasts until the morning. Ugh, your stomach hurts. Um, pornography. Guys, short-term, fulfill, short-term gratification, not long-term fulfillment. All you're trying to do is to escape your life instead of addressing things in your life that can bring long-term fulfillment. You're not going to get quenched. How about the search for bigger and better? (laughs) When I get, or when we move, or when we whatever, right? And not even some of that, you've heard me say this, it's not all bad. It's good stuff. But when we're trying to quench our thirst with it, it's not going to work. Social status, we talked about that before. Success, when people you know, look at me with that, that envious glow, like they wish they were me type of idea, you know, at work. Well, then finally I'll feel fulfilled and accepted and worthy. No, that lasts a short season until you mess up in the next quarter, right? None of this works, guys. In fact, it's uh, our next fill-in for today. We fill our bucket with things that can't quench our thirst. And maybe you just needed to hear that today <laughs> because you've tried and it hasn't been working. So how does this lady respond to Jesus kind of going right to the heart? Verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Like he just told her something that she had not told him before. And he's like, she's like, you must be from God. And, you know, you'd think, like, she would continue then with, so please help me. Or how do I fix this? Do you know what she does? She does what we tend to do when maybe I held up one of those signs that hit a little bit too close to home. We want to deflect and move on. (laughs) I don't want to talk about that one. Here's what she does. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. If that doesn't seem to make sense, you're catching on. Because she wanted to change the topic. She's talking to a prophet. So let's talk about religion in the sense of how to do it versus relationship in the sense of how do I get right with God? So she changes the topic to talk about religion instead of relationship. Verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. It doesn't matter where you worship. It doesn't matter how you worship. You could even be in a high school auditorium, and Jesus is here, okay? It doesn't matter. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Next verse. Yet a time is coming. And has now come when the true worshipers will worship, because it's about a relationship, guys, will worship the Father in spirit, the Holy Spirit there, capital S, and in truth. For they, 
They are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. What, what Jesus is telling her is she doesn't want to, to get to the place because it hurts too much, is saying, you can do all the rituals you want, and you can go to church every Sunday on this mountain or that mountain, but ultimately healing only happens when you recognize how, fall, how far you've fallen, and that Jesus the coming Savior is your only hope. And so the woman has like the best lead-in ever. The woman said, I know that Messiah in the Hebrew called Christ in the Greek is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. <laughs> and I'm sure Jesus is like, yeah, right here. You're talking to him. In fact, our, our last verse that Jesus declared, I, the one who's speaking to you, am he. Jesus is like, here I am. I'm the one. You know that deep hurt that you're feeling? The reason why he took her through that journey of hurt is because without the journey of hurt, she would not understand the blessing and joy of the living water of forgiveness that never ends, and that only through it could her thirst be quenched. You go back to that uh, verse, or next slide. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst, because forgiveness never runs out. And where there is forgiveness, there is identity. Where there is forgiveness, there is hope. Where there is forgiveness with the Father, there is a relationship there, is the only place that we can truly find or should find our identity, an identity that will always be good for us, that will a God that will never fail us. And you see, number four, Understanding the depths of our sin allows us to experience the depths of God's grace. What if Jesus would have just cut the sermon short and said, Hey, I am He at the beginning. I'm the Savior. She probably would have gone home that day thinking, Okay, He's the Savior, but can He do anything for me? Because no one around me loves me. But when he spent time to smoke out the worst of who she was, he was able to apply the living water that even would cover that. She left that day with no doubt, and in fact, of who she was through Christ. And she went and told other people she left happy. Here's the application that I, I want you to take home today. The first thing is this, that if you were to think about like the master plan of how Jesus would use his three years of ministry, I think I would have had him spend time with crowds all the time. Because if he's with crowds, if the crowd is bigger, there's more people hearing him. But Jesus chose to go through Samaria because he had to go there, not because of the crowds, but because of one woman near a well 
who needed what Jesus had to offer. See, there are certain moments that are revealing. I think in this moment, you and I see a Savior who came to this world, came to this earth to save the world. But that's pretty impersonal. He came to this earth to save you. And I don't care how worn and weary and guilty you feel today about something. I know you cannot feel worse than that lady who'd go to the well at noon because her whole community looked at her as an outcast. And what we see in Jesus is someone who loves the world but took time for individuals because it is individuals who make up the world. We do not have an impersonal savior. We have a personal one who came for us. And so leave today strengthened knowing that you've been forgiven. Not just the world, you. And then how about this? What if we left with what we've been given and give it to others? What if, what if we left and just didn't think, oh, it's the church's job to share the love of Jesus, but what if we just got really, really personal and thought, one person, one person I know at school, and it's going to start out, we're going to talk about water. Do you want some water, right? <laughs> but it's going to turn into something else, maybe. One person at work, one person in your neighborhood, because the world is made up of individuals. Jesus came for you, and we now, one person at a time, can share the difference he's made for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this event that maybe to some seemed quite minor, (laughs) but reveals to us your love, not just for the world, for me and for every single person in this room. May I find my true sense of worthiness and love and significance in you and the relationship you've given to me through Jesus. May I drink from that spring every single day. May that living water of forgiveness strengthen me. And may I now take it to others. Lord, we thank you for the good news of that rescue. Amen.